This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm rejoined this week by Mark Alley. Hey, Mark. Hey, good to be back. Good to be back. If only you were going to be here next week, but you're not. No, suffering for the company in San Diego. So there you go. You and I have different definitions of suffering, (laughs) clearly. Um, Who is joining us today? Joining us today is Thomas Berg. He's the uh, James Obastar Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota in the law school, particularly. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He is among the nation's leading scholars in law and religion, has written approximately 50 book chapters and journal articles and dozens of op-eds and shorter pieces on religious freedom, constitutional law, the role of religion in law, politics, and society. His work has been cited several times by the U.S. Supreme Court and federal courts of appeals. He is the author of several books, including a leading case book, Religion and the Constitution, with Michael McConnell and John Garvey, and, most interesting to me, The State and Religion in a Nutshell. Anybody who can write a book about the state and religion in a nutshell must be pretty sharp. So I'm glad you did that, Thomas. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a nutshell of a little over 300 pages. Oh, so there you go. I don't know if, I don't know if that, you're stretching the concept of <laughs> nutshell there, but... Well, that's your that's your publisher's description, so there you go. <laughs> right. And my new co-author is Chris Lund uh, on the uh, casebook. I should make sure Chris is, uh, is listed there. Yeah, that's good. Great guy. Well, we're really excited to have your expertise back on the show, Tom. It's going to be a great discussion as we discuss the Johnson Amendment this week. So last week, President Trump issued an executive order entitled Promoting Free Speech and Religious Liberty. This document, according to CT's coverage, professes to extend political speech protections for pastors and religious organizations, aiming to let them talk about politics without penalty. I'm signing today an executive order to defend the freedom of religion and speech in America, the freedom that we wanted, the freedoms that you fought for so long, said President Trump as he announced it last week. The federal government will never, ever penalize any person for their protected religious beliefs. President Trump continued, this financial threat against the faith community is over. You're now in a position to say what you want. No one should be censoring sermons or targeting pastors. The primary subject of Trump's executive order was the Johnson Amendment. It's legislation that has discouraged nonprofits, including churches, from endorsing political candidates for six decades. That said, the numbers don't necessarily support Trump's claim that pastors and churches really want that freedom. According to a Pew Research Center poll from last year, only about one-third of white evangelicals and about half of black Protestants believe that churches should endorse candidates during elections. And 29% of Americans overall said that they wanted this type of freedom. So today on Quick to Listen, we will discuss the history of the Johnson Amendment and its effect on churches as they engage in politics. Before we do this, I just want to remind everyone that to support the show, the best way that you do that is by buying a subscription to our magazine. Mark, do you want to say anything about an upcoming issue? 
the upcoming issue. Cambodia. Oh, yeah. Kate Sheldon, a very fine reporter and writer for CT, has written the cover story on the church's efforts in Cambodia to slow down sexual trafficking there. And it's really a fine, fine report. From what I understand, too, there's a decent amount of kind of looking, you know, after Pol Pot and the Cambodian genocide where the church has been able to take root. Yeah, so it's a really interesting glimpse into another culture, another nation, another part of the world where Christ is active. Kind of get ourselves out of the American bubble that we can often be in. So if people would like to read this issue, which is coming out in a matter of weeks, they can go to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And again, you're going to be able to get a lot of really great international coverage. The story is only one of some of the really fine international reporting we've done in the past couple of years. And you also will be supporting quick to listen. So thanks. All right, Mark, I would just love to hear what your gut reaction was to President Trump's announcement about the Johnson Amendment. Well, as I read about it, most people seem to think it wasn't going to make that material of a difference. And I'm anxious to hear Tom's view on this. But as such, whenever I hear about the Johnson Amendment, I'm with that majority that thinks it's not a bad idea. Even if it were to go away, I would still be one of those people that say a, a pastor should never uh, endorse. A candidate. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, he should never endorse a candidate from the pulpit. He's got much more important people to endorse from that pulpit. His name is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I don't think Jesus is running for office, though. So, well, he's running for the office of our lives. If All you right. Could put it that okay. Way. <laughs> I'm a former pastor. Okay. <laughs> yes, I really. <laughs> so my. Gut check. I just was thinking about how, like, when I first heard of the Johnson Amendment, it was actually kind of confusing to me because I remember going to a church growing up where they handed out voter guides. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. That's so foreign to my experience. I remember being like, wait, you can't endorse a candidate, but look at this voter guide. This voter guide makes it pretty clear that if you care about these types of issues, there's only a couple candidates to endorse. So I like didn't even know that the Johnson Amendment existed for a long time because I didn't necessarily see this separation that had existed. You know, it, it was almost like, well, if you're saying that you can be behind these issues, what exactly are you saying that they can't do? And I've kind of carried that cynicism with me for a long time. All right, Tom, we want to know all the details and stuff to make this a little bit more interesting. Well, we, we should talk, we should say a little bit about the executive order first. Um, and and the, the main thing to say about it is that it was a it was a, a non-event, um, as one of my fellow bloggers on our blog said, is a nothing burger. It already was not addressing a real practical issue because churches were not being overseas, uh, being you know gone after. The IRS was not going after churches, but Trump made a campaign promise that he was going to do away with the Johnson Amendment, and it was nice sounding, and um, but there wasn't a huge wasn't a huge issue there. Uh, and then, in addition, he didn't really say anything in the executive order. He said that uh, the IRS should should avoid interfering with religious and political speech to the maximum, to the largest extent practicable, I think are the exact words, the greatest extent practicable and consistent with the law. So in other words, you know, do what you can, but don't, you know, don't to the extent permitted by law. So don't you know, it just didn't tell them what to do exactly. Really no different than what the IRS is doing now. So maybe you can just tell us about what the Johnson Amendment really is. It is a condition on one aspect of federal tax exemption. It says that if an organization intervenes in a political campaign on behalf of a candidate or in opposition to a candidate, 
then contributions to that organization will no longer be tax deductible. So that's one aspect of federal tax exemption, right? The organization is still exempt itself from paying taxes on its income, but contributors can't deduct what they give to the organization, which, of course, reduces their incentive to give and would be a pretty significant effect on an organization. Um, It applies to all tax-exempt organizations, secular as well as religious, and uh, including churches. So that's what it says. Um, And then the way it's been applied is, is a little bit different. How did it come about? It came about because of Lyndon Johnson, hence the name. He uh, was the minority leader in the Senate in 1954. He was powerful even as the minority leader. He became the majority leader the next year and then became very powerful. But he was already an extremely powerful senator. Um, He was up for re-election in 1954, and he was opposed by a conservative group in the form of a nonprofit foundation that was kind of the work of an oil man who didn't like Johnson or his or his policies. Uh, so he was taking out ads against Johnson and so on. So Johnson pushed this bill through to stop that sort of activity. I mean, it comes out of a very personal uh, background. So there were no churches involved in the episode against Johnson, but uh, it covers all, written to cover all tax exempts. But because it was so personal, uh, it was not it was not something driven by a wide clamor for it. Uh, there was there, there was no debate in Congress, which means that we have very little, if any, evidence of its legitimate purposes or its illegitimate purposes. Um, it was Lyndon Johnson's baby that he pushed through, uh, and then it's been reenacted without much further debate. So would it be fair to conclude that the reason why it passed without opposition is that most people were pretty much on board or they just were clueless <laughs> as to what was happening? I mean, you can certainly defend this order or this uh, provision in kind of broad terms if you don't analyze it too much. Uh, you, you don't want tax-exempt organizations becoming a conduit for taking sides in an election where the election is a kind of activity that we think ought to be, you know, sort of not not have undue influence on it, right? That's kind of an issue right now again, isn't it? Um, so if you phrase it that way, sort of powerful tax-exempt organizations using the benefit of tax exemption to toss an election one way or the other with big money. That sounds great, and it's easy to get everybody to sign on to that. The problem is that the the breadth of it, at least on its face, covers a number of things that might raise uh, significant First Amendment questions. For example? The one that opponents point to most, and as I think a legitimate religious liberty question, is if you use an endorsement of a candidate from the pulpit in every regular Sunday morning service, sermon where the preacher says, uh, I think really the only candidate who reaches, who who meets the moral tests is this one. Um, That is an endorsement. And, And in fact, you can violate the provision with less explicit statements than that. One of the examples of of this, again, the IRS usually has not enforced the provision, but every once in a while it it does. It decides it needs to enforce a provision of the statute that's actually in the statute book, and that's its job. So in 2004, the IRS opened up an investigation against a liberal Episcopal church in Pasadena, California, that had a visiting preacher, um, a rector, I believe, a retired rector or someone from another church, but kind of still speaking in the pulpit of the church. It was about the war in Iraq, 2004. And it said, what would Jesus say to George Bush and John Kerry? Now, that was not, nowhere in that sermon did he 
say, uh, you should vote for John Kerry over George Bush. But the whole sermon was a an argument, essentially, that Jesus would, would favor the non-intervention side, since Christianity is a, is a gospel of peace. And the IRS launched an investigation over whether the church had violated the electioneering or the candidate intervention provision. Eventually, they determined that it hadn't, but it took three years to get to the point where the church received a letter that that was uh, okay. So you've got a combination of things here that could make the sermon situation a real problem. You've got a a somewhat unclear standard. It doesn't cover just the magic words of, I endorse this candidate. Uh, You can violate it. For example, Morgan mentioned voter guide. In theory, the IRS says that if you have a voter guide that is too imbalanced and too selective on (laughs) issues, too partisan, you, you could be violating the provision. Now, how does that square with the church's ability to decide what issues are most important and which are less important? So you've a provision that is not totally clear in its scope and could cut into things that are not explicit endorsements. And all it takes under the rules is one instance of a campaign intervention to violate it. And theoretically, again, if that happens, you lose deductibility for all your contributions. Now, if that were enforced, According to its terms, that would be a serious restriction on religious freedom. Again, we should recognize that it's not being enforced according to its terms. But yeah, there I want to ask you about good, that. Good re- there are good reasons why it's not being enforced according to its terms. So what's up with that? Every time you know, I've written about religion for a number of years, and I've always been confused by the fact that whenever the Johnson Amendment comes up, the other part that comes up is it's really not enforced that often. Well, there would be, I think, serious church-state uh, issues involved in that. In the uh, investigation of the Pasadena Church, for example, the IRS had to investigate, had to read a sermon and decide whether in context this was a, a statement on a political matter or went over the line to the endorsement of a candidate. When does it become too, too focused? When do you use the name too much? When is it too, quote-unquote, skewed? I mean, those are things that, for reasons of church-state separation, we generally don't want government officials to be be doing. Think about those subpoenas to Houston pastors a couple of years ago about their speaking on same-sex marriage from the pulpit, right? That caused a tremendous outcry, and those subpoenas were withdrawn very quickly. But if the IRS were doing that, it would create really significant uh, problems and would chill sermons on political matters. Uh, in theory, you can say, well, you can say a lot of things, but you just can't endorse a candidate. And that's, that is a distinction. But once the, if the line is a little fuzzier as to what an endorsement of a candidate is, then you have some serious church-state issues on the border. In fact, we don't really have those issues <laughs> because it's not enforced. And I think Trump's promise during the campaign to do away with the Johnson Amendment was already much ado about nothing because it wasn't really being used against churches. So how does that apply to a nonprofit magazine like Christianity Today? Uh, we had a forum before the during the election in which we had a uh, writer write on behalf of Hillary Clinton, one on behalf of Trump, and one on behalf of neither. I assume that would be considered kosher to the IRS? Yeah, certainly publishing even-handed perspectives doesn't violate that. You know, the one instance of a tax exemption being being yanked from a uh, a magazine was the Christian Century in 1964. They endorsed Lyndon Johnson, uh, ironically, <laughs> over Bar- over Barry Goldwater. I mean, they said this is just too big a matter for us to be silent. We can't be silent on the choice between Goldwater and Johnson. We must speak explicitly. And their tax exemption was 
was taken away. Now, it's not the end of the world because you can then qualify again the next year if you show that you're not going to do it okay. again, that okay. kind of thing. So, But for, for a moment, there their deductibility was That's very interesting, yeah. So why have churches and nonprofits traditionally been tax-exempt? Churches are a little bit different from them. They're treated a little bit different from other nonprofits. But nonprofits as a whole are exempt because of two things. First of all, they make some kind of contribution to the community. It's education or the arts or service to the needy, defined very broadly. And second, because any profits that they make are not distributed to the owners of the organization, but rather are plowed back into further services. So those are the two basic requirements for tax exemption. If nonprofits weren't exempt from income tax, or if a taxpayer couldn't deduct contributions to them, they'd have far fewer resources to provide the kind of services that they provide, and government would have to provide more of those services itself. Some people argue for that, uh, particularly people on the left, and there are clearly things that government does can do that the private sector can't do. But a big part of our tradition in America has been to rely on that kind of mosaic of private organizations to provide service. Under the federal law, at least, churches don't have to show that they fit into those categories of education, the arts, or service to the needy. They're exempt just as churches. They're their own category. And I think the judgment there is that churches are uh, another kind of distinctive contributor to society in that they meet people's spiritual needs, whether you can classify that as education, the arts, uh, social needs. They meet people's spiritual needs, and they and they contribute in that way. Uh, exemption of churches also reflects a concern for religious freedom. We know that the power to tax can be the power to destroy. Exemption is a almost a kind of prophylactic or avoidance measure, allowing the government to be too involved in, in churches. In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. There have been a number of studies as well that have shown that try to put a dollar value on what churches contribute to the society, and I don't have those figures in my hand, but it is quite astounding the large numbers that are used to, to justify that. So I think a lot of people don't consider how much social need the church actually does meet. I believe that some of the figures uh, from uh, Brian Grimm runs an organization that does this, and Ram Kanan at the University of Pennsylvania has studied this for years, uh, sociologists. Uh, they're talking about in the hundreds of billions to, to trillions of dollars in value. Wow. Uh, in terms of the services they provide, the employment they provide to people, and the education that they provide, and so on. It's huge. So having said all this, what good arguments have you guys seen to make them not tax-exempt or to lose tax-exempt status and contribute financially? Churches in particular? Yes. Uh, I actually had a student write an interesting paper for me this uh, last semester in which he argued churches should be put under the same categories as other organizations. Right? If the church provides education or it 
provide some kind of social services to those in need, the kind of things that would qualify under other the other categories of tax exemption, then then and only then it should be exempt. And I'm not sure that would change the result dramatically because I think most churches do provide those things. I mean, where do people where where do a lot of people learn how to sing? They learn in children's choirs. Uh, you know, where do they take some of their first education? They, they they get it in Sunday school or in a Jewish temple classes there. So I think you could make the case for churches that they do all of these things. It would mean that, that they would have to show that and they would have to report to the government more on what they do than is the case now. For small churches in particular, that could be that could be a burden. Now, as far as taking tax exemptions away from organizations in general, that would be a huge change in our way of delivering social services and education and the arts. And I guess some people argue for that, but that would that would really set us on a very different course. Yeah, I think uh, the reasons I've heard for withdrawing tax exemption from churches has to do with uh, people's uh, understanding of the separation of church and state. I think it's a misunderstanding or a misconstrual of what that idea is about, but that would be one argument I've heard. That basically the state is giving a religious organization a privilege? Yes. It's interesting. When the Supreme Court dealt with tax exemptions for churches 45 years ago, um, they considered that argument, and they said, well, as, first of all, as long as you're giving the benefit to uh, lots of organizations, uh, secular and religious, then it's not really a benefit for the church as a church. It's a benefit for the for the whole class of, of organizations. And uh, if you're going to talk about separation of church and state, you might characterize the tax exemption as a form of interaction or cooperation. But on the other hand, if you had taxation of churches, then that would run up, that would could be said to violate the separation too, because you and here, this is an example of it with sermons, you'd have government officials monitoring the churches much more. So the court said, well, separation kind of goes either way. So we're going to let the, we're going to let the government decide on this. If it wants to exempt churches, it, it can. And, and I do think that the separation argument, it, it assumes that a, base, a baseline of everything in our world is taxed. And I think we, I guess we do live with that sort of assumption, but it, it shouldn't necessarily be something that we adopt uncritically that, uh, that Therefore, any any departure from that is a is a form of subsidy or or whatever. I think the other one is um, I don't know if people say this, but it does seem to me that uh, in many communities in America now, people do not simply value what the church brings to a community, especially on the moral and theological end or spiritual end. They see it more as a nuisance. Uh, it creates traffic creates noise certain times of the week, uh, and it, it's not perceived in the 50s and 60s. It was considered if a church moved into your neighborhood, everyone thought that was a good thing because it was going to uplift everybody's moral values. Now people consider it a bad thing. So I think part of it just has to do with the secular drift of our country, and some of it, frankly, has to do with, the, with many churches just being bad neighbors and not being considerate of the neighborhood in which they are. Uh, so it's a, I think it's a combination of uh, implicit and explicit reasons. Last year, I worked on a story for a Chicago publication about storefront churches in this particular neighborhood, under-resourced neighborhood in Chicago, and they were located on a commercial corridor. That particular area had been zoned for businesses, and yet churches made up about 25% of the tenants that were there. And there was frustration from some of the business community and other residents because they felt the churches were not doing their part. There were 
were built-in incentives that the city had created to use tax dollars to reinvest in the community. But because they had so many churches, they weren't necessarily able to generate as much income for those projects because of the fact that they had that many churches in other nonprofits as well. Well, another reason in the business community, I remember trying to thinking about relocating a church I was pastoring and saw an open storefront in a shopping area and was thinking that would be a place to put the church. But the, the other business owners were not keen on that because it was only bringing people to the shopping center one day a week, essentially. And mm-hmm. they wanted something there that was going to bring people six or seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So there are th- those financial considerations as well. So that would, I think that would apply to your business district. Too. It, it applied to it as well. Yeah. But I guess there was that, you know, again, where the city had created incentives that were based on taxes, right? And so a church doesn't feel as much like a team player when it's not participating directly in contributing to those incentives. Yeah. And so these are reasons why churches have uh, have zoning issues if they're trying to locate in, in those sorts of areas. I mean, people don't want them in the residential area because they're noisy and they're there on Sunday morning or Saturday morning uh, and waking, waking them up. Uh, and they don't want them in a commercial or business area because they don't contribute to the tax base. Yeah, they don't want churches hosting uh, food closets. That was another issue in Sacramento that I was in. Exactly. Uh, they don't want a riffraff, quote-unquote riffraff, coming through the neighborhood, collecting, getting their food for the week. So, yeah, there are a variety of reasons why there's uh, some legitimate, some illegitimate hostility to churches. I'm wondering if we can go back to the Johnson Amendment and how it's kind of affected what gets talked about on Sunday mornings and how it may have restrained or liberated, ironically, pastors. It may have had some effect on churches, uh, although, again, the fact that it's not really enforced would reduce that effect. There's a difference between different churches. If you look at, for example, Catholic churches, they get very strong guidance from the National Bishops Conference, then filtered down through their individual bishops in general to avoid endorsements from the from the pulpit. Uh, they get guidance on what their voter guides should say and how to keep them from being, you know, too too unbalanced and 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 cause problems. The, the Catholic churches, at least as a matter of policy, tend to steer clear of the. Uh, the prohibition, you know, to stay as far away from violating it as possible. I think that's less so with uh, with evangelicals. Certainly, a lot of even white evangelical preachers, as well as black evangelical preachers, do stay away from it. And maybe the Johnson Amendment has something to do with that. Although, as both of you have pointed out, there are lots of reasons not to endorse candidates that are independent of anything that, that the law says. Um, but it is also you know, violated technically more in, in white evangelical and black evangelical churches, too. I, I, I hadn't heard the figures, Morgan, that you quoted at the beginning. I hadn't heard those before. But, I mean, it was, what was it, 50% of black pastors said you shouldn't endorse a candidate? 45% of black Protestants believe that churches should endorse candidates during yeah, the election. Yeah, right. So 45% believe you should. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot. Uh, and you do see politicians in the pulpit of black churches, right? They come through at every election season, and there's a lot of speaking about about individual candidates. And and then you see Pulpit Freedom Sunday, sponsored by the Alliance Defense Freedom, where, where white evangelical pastors are uh, explicitly endorsing candidates, and the IRS has done nothing uh, about that. Yeah, I just speak uh, anecdotally. When I was a pastor, uh, frankly, I don't know that I'd ever heard of the Johnson Amendment, but it's certainly a 
it was certainly true of me and my my colleagues. We would have never imagined uh, endorsing a candidate from the pulpit. We just thought that was bad theology. So I'm not sure the Johnson Amendment, how much it's made a difference in anyone's thinking, as much as this in- the instinct of most churches and most pastors that's just a waste of the time you have in the pulpit to preach about something that's actually more important than that. Well, I was going to say, I think we talked about earlier this week how we had seen some feedback from pastors who were disappointed that it had been repealed because it had given them a legal reason almost to to stay within the confines of preaching the gospel. <laughs> it covered their you-know-what. Instead of having the courage to say, I don't think that's what the pulpit should be used for, they can say, well, if we did that, we might get in trouble with the IRS. It's okay. Their day of reckoning is coming. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Next election cycle. I have no. I have little sympathy with people who use the law to cover up a, a point of principle that they're afraid to just say what they believe. So there you go. Well, let me push a little bit. And I wonder if this is going to happen in our more from liberal churches, actually, in our current with our current president. So here's the argument for endorsing a candidate. What do you think of this? Uh, you know, you have a candidate who does some good things that tempt people to support him. He makes the trains run on time, like they said about Mussolini, but he does so at a moral cost that is so great uh, in terms of oppression of minorities or corruption or whatever, that you have to overcome this temptation of people to minimize those things because of the of the person also does some, some good things. You have to explicitly tell people to resist the temptation. So aren't there circumstances in which that there's something to be said for that? Definitely. There are definitely circumstances in which there are social and political issues which the church should address. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how to address those without naming names and without getting so specific. But certainly you can, uh, sometimes, in fact, sometimes inference or suggestion is actually much more powerful than a direct attack on on a candidate. So for example, Let's say your congregation is is racist and there's a candidate uh, who is a racist. You could preach a series of sermons on uh, how God is the creator of all these different cultures and what all these different cultures are bringing to the kingdom of God. And uh, you could use various and sundry scripture passages that show the value of many cultures. It wouldn't take a rocket scientist sitting in the pews to understand what the pastor was saying without him actually saying it. Well, I mean, you could also argue that if your congregation has issues with racism, they're not going to be solved by you coming up behind a candidate and telling them, you know, if they're already going to be inclined to vote for that person, it may not be about that candidate. It may be about you doing the work of coming up with a series that's challenging racism, right? I mean, there seems like it's almost kind of like endorsing a candidate doesn't, shouldn't remove the need to do other type of discipleship work that's right. there. The type of discipleship work that would be needed for a candidate who was deeply immoral, but the congregation was attracted to him is exactly right. It would take more than one sermon. It would take years of discipleship in order to help drive that home. But I do agree with you. There are moments and issues about which the church should speak, but I think uh, pastors need to do that theologically and biblically. Uh, And that's actually a more powerful and deeper way to convince, especially evangelical readers. I keep on coming back to the example of before Ron Sider wrote his book, The Rich Rich, Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger, most evangelicals were indifferent to world hunger. And because he made such a powerful biblical argument about God's concern for the poor and the hungry, I believe that was a major reason the evangelical movement kind of shifted its thinking on that topic. And I think of 
a pastor does his homework well, he can help guide a congregation in in uh, voting and thinking and acting more morally and civilly in civil society. So, Tom, I'm just wondering, do you think that this is an executive order that will eventually become law or it's something that will be rescinded once we have a new president? Well, that, again, is no different than what the IRS is is doing now. That's the first thing about the executive order. Is it actually, the controversy over it blew over in about one day. He ended up not going out on a limb for evangelicals. I mean, I guess the next president, if it's a, if it's a Democrat, uh, in, you know, in four years or three years, might undo it, but they don't really need to. There's not much, not much to undo. And for the same reason, I guess I don't expect uh, legislation to go anywhere. There's not, there's not a powerful need for it, given the status quo. So, given where we are at today, what is your advice to churches uh, if they are interested in somehow bringing some political discourse into their churches? How, how would you advise them? Many of the things that you said really make a lot of sense from a theological standpoint and from a church practice. Uh, standpoint. Teach moral principles. Let people draw their conclusions from that. Show, don't tell, right? Uh, Or attract people to the conclusion and let them reach it themselves. That's a a great general strategy of of rhetoric and persuasion. Be a place for discussion and understanding. Uh, We certainly need more of that. Uh, To the extent that we have division in our churches, and, and, and we do, and churches in some ways are sorting into left and right the way the rest of the society is, but there's still divisions within the churches. It should be a place for trying to understand each other first and, and relate to each other as fellow believers, as brothers and sisters. I don't think that sort of best practices for churches is the same thing as what government officials should decide. So you might say that it's bad for preachers to endorse candidates from the pulpit. That doesn't mean that we really want to have a rule that government officials would seriously enforce to do that with respect to, to sermons. But I, I do think there are lots of things that can be done to uh, to make our churches a, a place of understanding rather than uh, division while still standing up for clear political implications of the gospel. Awesome. Thank you so much for educating us on this, Tom. And as always, if you have reactions to that, please go to Twitter or Facebook. We're on Twitter at CT Podcast. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcast. And speaking of feedback, we are going to launch into a short segment called Slow to Speak, which is when we have a chance to basically read some of the feedback that you've given us. Mark, I'm sure you remember our very interesting episode on transhumanism a couple weeks ago. Uh So interestingly enough, we got a neuroscience PhD student to comment on this episode. Um, His name is Tommy Dunham, and I'm just going to read some of his feedback. Stay with me. It's a little bit scientific. Sorry, Tommy. We love what you wrote. So hopefully everyone can go back to this episode when we were talking. The beginning of the episode, we talked about CRISPR therapy, which is essentially what we called like copy and paste um, gene therapy, where you're going to be able to to change people's genes with this new technology. And so Tommy wanted to comment on some of his concerns about what we had talked about with this CRISPR therapy. He said, you presented an ideal case, one in which CRISPR therapy bears no threat to the health of the developing embryo. This is not the case in reality, though as using CRISPR on rapidly dividing embryonic cells increases the risk of a mosaic mutation, one in which some cells are healthy and some are not. The only certain way to combat this would be IVF, using CRISPR on embryos outside of the womb and only implanting ones that had all cells corrected. 
that leaves other embryos to be either discarded, used for research, or stored in the hopes that someone might adopt them. Does this affect your response to the possibility of using CRISPR technology on embryos? How does this affect the believer's perspective on elective enhancement of children through CRISPR technology? And does that fact that A, the child has no choice in this enhancement, and B, since the enhancement is genetic, all future generations stemming from that child will carry this, be unwillingly affected, play into a Christian's response. Tommy, that is really awesome food for thought. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think he raised a good point, as did others. Uh, and I mentioned this to our guests. I, I said I appreciated the fact that he was what I'd call a technological optimist, and I wanted to hear that point of view on our show. I tend to be more of a tech, technological pessimist or deep questioner. And so we're going to come back to this topic at another point. I'd like to hear more from people who have deep concerns about the transhumanism effort and the role of technology in our lives, because I think we need to understand that view as well. But So this is a good response. Absolutely. All right. Now we are going to have the type of what we call precious moments. I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week, as well as where we can find them on the internet. Tom, do you want to go first? Um, sure. First, you can find me on the internet on Twitter at TCBergMN, T-C-B-E-R-G-M-N, and I blog at uh, the Mirror of Justice blog, which is mirrorofjustice.blogs.com. So the thing that's giving me joy is this coming weekend, a play that my wife and one other person and I have uh, written, a musical play, is on its way to readings in Lexington, Kentucky, and it's a play about the backstairs look at the Lincoln White House uh, during the Civil War, and it's intrigue in the cabinet, the kind of team of rivals aspects in the cabinet, but also the relationships between President Lincoln and Mary Lincoln and Elizabeth Keckley, who was Mary Lincoln's seamstress. She was a freed black woman living in Washington who became Mary Lincoln's closest friend because she didn't have hardly any other friends in Washington, D.C. So it's an interesting story, and we've uh, put it to music, Lincoln Sings, and we're going to see how it goes in public readings in Lexington this weekend. And I'm, uh, after learning more about President Lincoln and the whole just constant barrage of, of heartache and tragedy and stress, I'm more uh, amazed by how he found his way through those years. That's great. So I I failed to acknowledge you as a playwright and a writer of musicals. So we'll do that the next time you're on the show. <laughs> no worries. Well, my precious moment's coming up this weekend as well. Uh, I am going to New Orleans. That's awesome. Where my daughter and son-in-law live. Uh, they are the owners of a restaurant called A Thousand Figs. So if any of you want to go, the New Orleans folks wants to go there and visit, tell them Teresa's dad sent them. Maybe they'll give you a discount. I don't know. They're also opening another restaurant. Anyway, they're restauranteurs, and so my wife and I go there. We enjoy being with them, in part because they take us to just some great restaurants, un, uh, little-known restaurants in New Orleans. So that's going to be a good weekend. It sounds awesome. And I can be found not on Twitter or Facebook, but on uh, something called The Galley Report, a set of links and commentary I send out every week. And you can find that by going to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. So this weekend... I am going to Richmond to visit my entire family, and we will be together for the first time in about two years. My little sister is coming back for a couple weeks from Beirut, where she lives, and she will be meeting my other sister, who's in med school in Virginia, and my parents are flying out as well, and we are going to potentially get together. Um, my sister who's in med school is definitely in the throes 
or the thick of things at med school. So hopefully she'll have some time to hang out as well. And it'll be great to see everybody. Wow. Sounds like a family of ambitious children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <All> <laughs> and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> Maybe you are. All right. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. So thank you, everyone, for listening to Quick to Listen. This week, our producers are Cray Allred and Richard Clark. You can find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes. And iTunes is also where you're going to want to go if you're going to leave a review of the show. And thank you, everyone, who reviews our show. We really appreciate it. That is it for us. We'll see you next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.